0: If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a really tough section of the Bible. There are times that as a pastor, you look forward to getting up into the pulpit, look forward to getting a message, look forward to discussing a topic. That's not one of these, okay? This is one of those that's a little tougher. But you know what? It's still something that we need to see because it's about spiritual discipline. Spiritual discipline. Normally when I say the word discipline, do you consider that a positive or a negative notion? Yeah, it's usually a negative thing. I mean, discipline's not particularly what we like. I I went to a dictionary this week and I wanted to just define discipline so we know for sure what we're talking about. Three main definitions in a couple of different dictionaries. The first one was uh, the the definition of, of discipline is training to act in accordance with rules. Training to act in accordance with rules. You teach your children discipline. You have to take the trash out. You have to to do these three or four things. If you're in the military, military discipline means that you get up at unbelievable hours in the morning and you run unbelievable miles and do all the drills that they have. The second definition is uh, an activity that improves skill. The discipline is an activity that improves skill. And a lot of times we think of athletics. You can, you can jump over the, the high bar. You can run faster. You can, you can do those things. You can be a, an NFL player. You, you, you know, you, you can do these things by discipline, and that's honing those skills. But actually, it goes a lot more than that. All kinds of skills. To type, you don't just sit down the first day and say, I think I'm going to type today well some of you do and you're still doing that that's you know and now with the kids with the thumbs they text faster than we can even think with two thumbs who knew if you could just get them to do that with some other things uh, but but they can text so fast with their thumbs but it, they didn't do that the first time it took them some time working on that skill. There's a skill of cooking. There's all kinds of different skill. The first time that you cook is not necessarily the best meal you will ever make. If it is, there's a whole other issues that we need to talk about. There's training, in other words. Here's the third definition, though, of discipline, and it's the one that we like probably the least. Punishment inflicted to correct or to train. Punishment inflicted to correct or to train. You have a child, again, and that child does something he's not supposed to do, and you do a timeout, or maybe you give him a swat on the behind, or, or maybe you send him into his room, although now with some of the rooms, that's just sending them to Disneyland. They have all the stuff in their room, not, necessar- not necessarily training them that well. But, you, but you're trying to say, I'm going to take something, I'm going to try to make it painful enough that you'll learn from the situation. John Ortberg is a pastor that I, I really love his writing. He's, he's hilarious, he's a, he's a fun guy. But when he got into this topic, he, this is what he says, discipline for us is any activity I can do by direct effort that allows me to do what I cannot do now by direct effort. Anything I can do now, I can put myself into it, training to do something that I could not do otherwise. And he uses the example of a marathon. Nobody goes out the first day and says, you know, I think I'm going to run 26.2 miles. I can do the 26, I just can't do the .2. You know, that's the really tough part. No, it's the .2 we can get. The 26 takes the training, right? And you have to learn to do that. You have to build up your legs, you have to build up your breathing, you have to build up your body so you can do that. That's discipline. But he goes on to say that spiritual discipline is the same thing in a spiritual sense, That there are things, even when we come to Jesus Christ and we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we come into the family of God, we're born again, we're part of the family of God, there are still things that God wants us to learn to do that he trains us to do. And so a spiritual discipline is any activity I can do now to teach me those things that I could not do otherwise that would make me more like Jesus Christ. You see, it's one thing to train for an athletic event. It's a whole, a whole different thing to train to be more like Jesus Christ. And again, don't get this confused because we're not talking about grace. Grace underlines all of this. You don't become a Christian by training to be a Christian. You don't become a Christian by being good enough to be a Christian. You become a Christian by joining the family, by accepting what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he stretched out his arms and died in your place and in my place. But even though we become a family, there is some training. And I think that we have a good analogy. We've had some babies that have been added to our congregation, and we have some more babies coming. We're excited about a couple people that are going to give birth in the next few months. And when those babies come into the world, they are part of that family, and they become part of the church family. And I love the fact that the day that they're born, they have steak, and they have uh, you know, corn on the cob not not any babies i've ever seen have you ever seen a baby come right at birth and they give them a a, a, you know corn on the cob what could they do with that they could numb it to i mean gum it to death but that wouldn't do any good they don't have teeth they they have to develop they have to grow they have to mature and that's what the lord says i've birthed you as a baby into the family but you need to grow as a christian now in the writer of hebrews in chapter 12 verse 11 This is what he says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. How many of you say, oh wow, I got discipline today, that was my favorite thing in the world. No, you never say that. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Here's the point, and this is where we're going today. The Lord wants to take us, those, those spiritual babies that are put into this world, and He wants to teach us by a variety. There's three different definitions of discipline, and by using all three of those methods of discipline, He wants to teach us how to live as His children. Let's look at this, First Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at the first eight verses. What is the purpose of spiritual discipline? I've given you a over, brief overview, let's look at it in detail. What's the purpose? What, what are we doing this for? 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. This is the early church, things have not changed a lot. There's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans, A man has his father's wife. Now, again, I I need to stop for just a minute because he doesn't say a man has a sexual relationship with his mother. He says his father's wife. There's a Greek word, mater, just like pater, paternity, maternity. There's a word for mother, and he doesn't use that. He uses specific terminology, his father's wife. It's his stepmother. He's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Look at look at the next verse. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. I have to stop here for just a second. Have you ever said, I can't be there, but, I can, but I'll be with you in spirit? You know what that really means? Absolutely nothing. Generally what it means is, oh boy, I don't have to go. But Paul changes it. And what he says is, I'm going to be with you because the Holy Spirit, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst, God says. The Holy Spirit is there. And in the sense that I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even though physically I'm not there, in a very real sense, all believers are there. This is what he's saying. And you say, well, I'm not sure if that's really what he means. Look back. Verse 3, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present now look at verse 4 this really spells it out when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present then he says a really tough thing hand this man over to Satan so the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord your boasting is not good Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, he's referring to the Old Testament, to the time when Israel was leaving Egypt, and there was a Passover, and he says, Jesus Christ became our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We'll talk more about that. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, The yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread made without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And you say, Pastor, I'm confused. What in the world is he talking about? Well, let's break it down for just a minute. Three things. Number one, discipline crafts a healthy church. Paul is opening up by saying, Listen, there's a problem within the church and you're not handling it. Discipline. Crafts a healthy church as upset as paul was over this incest as upset as he was about this sexual sin in the church he's more upset that they are not handling it they're not dealing with it they're not doing anything about it and you say wait a second pastor don't i remember on the sermon on the mount when jesus is speaking to them he says judge not lest you be not judged wasn't it jesus that talked about that if somebody's got a speck of sawdust in their eye if you've got a plank, if you've got a two-by-four hanging out of your eye, you shouldn't be going around and, and condemning someone else. We're not supposed to condemn anybody else. Pastor, everybody should come to the church and and we should just not worry about that stuff. Well, you see, here's the problem. Jesus is speaking specifically about a specific case where someone was being a hypocrite. They were blinded. Uh, Not long ago, the other night, in fact, last night, I was eating dinner and I was having some Mexican food, as I've been known to do, and I touched my eye with hot sauce on it. Now I wear contacts. And I got the hot sauce underneath the contact. Yes, it was such a wonderful experience. And so I turned to Kathy and I said, let me see, I think you have a speck in your eye, let me see if I can get that out. No, I ran to the bathroom, took the contact out, flushed my eye out, flushed the contact off and put it back in. I, you know what? I had to be able to see before I could do anything with anybody else. And yet so many times we who are guilty of the same thing are really busy tearing somebody else apart. That's what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about hypocrisy. He was talking about being judgmental. He was talking about someone who comes to the church and the first thing they do is they walk in and they say, well, they're not as good as me. And they begin to take shots at people. And it just reminds me, and I have to stop here for just a second because I I want to say something. Rick Warren has been out of the church for 16 weeks at his church in Southern California. Rick Warren, a pastor in Southern California, a wonderful man who loves Jesus Christ. You may not agree with everything that he says, but Rick Warren loves Christ, and he's led many people to the Lord. His son committed suicide a little over 16 weeks ago. He has not preached for 16 weeks. He took this time off. And he has had a deluge of people who have criticized him and been judgmental and and questioned all of the things that went on with his son. I woke up at 5.15 this morning, the dogs woke me up and I was beginning to do my devotions and I just thought of Rick Warren and I began to pray, Lord, give him the greatest day he's ever had as a pastor in his pulpit. Because Rick Warren has ministered to me and to so many other people and we're so busy being judgmental and hypocritical and, and condemning to him. Rick Warren said something that Kathy found, and, and I loved what he said this week. Always preach on tough topics with a loving heart, a humble mind, and a tender voice. If you see someone else caught in a sin, the first thing you need to have is that tender heart, that loving voice, that, that humility to come to them. And Jesus was talking about coming in with the wrong attitude. But if you come in with that tender heart and and broken because that person is caught in a sin, that's what we're supposed to do. The church is supposed to be a hospital for hurting people. If you came into this church today and you have this huge weight on your shoulder, we're here to tell you that Jesus Christ, we may not have the answer, but Jesus Christ has the answer. We're not going to to be here to condemn you when you walk into this church. But if you've come to the Lord and you've accepted him as your Savior and you're beginning to live, and especially if you, and it it appears that this man had a position of leadership in the church, then there is a higher standard expected of you and there's a time when the church needs to come, not an individual, but that the church needs to come and help that man get himself right with the Lord. Because it's not good for the body. Many years ago, I worked at Kenworth. Kenworth Diesel Truck Place. We put all the trucks together. I was working in the summer, in between years of college, and I immediately realized, once I worked on the assembly line for about 15 minutes. I said I need to go back to college. I did not like that. It was hot. It was in Kansas City. It was working four to midnight. It was a horrible job. And one of the first jobs they gave me was to work a, a metal lathe. and And they would lay this whole huge bed of steel out, and this lathe would come down and it would and it would create doors and all kinds of of body parts for the for the trucks back then. Many many years ago, back in the dark ages. That, that's when I did that. And I wore the safety goggles and everything else, but one day while I was doing that, a fan that was over there caught one of those pieces of steel, and it embedded itself in my right eye, went through the eyelid, actually, into the eye, and pegged my eyelid into the eye. It felt so good. Not. But, you know, I thought, it's just a little tiny piece of steel in my eye. It's not that big of a deal. Do you think that's really what I said? No. All of the work on the steel lathe came to a screeching halt. There was an emergency button. I hit the emergency. They came over. They brought the, the medic. And this. You know, they, they came over. And I'm bleeding. And I'm, you know, I look like I'm just this horrible person. And, I, and I, they said, what's wrong? I said, hey, I think I have something in my eye. And they forced my eye open. Because you know, the first thing you do is try to clamp it shut. And they forced it open. And they put some antibiotic stuff on it. And then a guy took tweezers. And he just plucked it out. Now, that hurt. But n- not nearly as much as it would have hurt if I'd left it in. And what Paul is saying to this church, this body of believers, is you have something that's going to destroy you and bring to halt the work of the church unless you deal with it. That's exactly what he's doing here. If we allow uncorrected sin in our midst, it's unhealthy for the church, for the body. Hebrews chapter 12, on a personal level, is talking about this, but it also applies to the body. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. If you're part of the family, God's going to rebuke us. He's going to discipline us. He's going to, when we're doing something that is harmful for the body of the church, he's going to bring someone someone alongside to help us. And it was a public sin. Paul could have handled this privately, except it was public. Paul is hundreds of miles away, and he's heard about it. He said, it is reported. It, It was widespread. People knew what was happening in the church. And he likens it to yeast in a dough. It's fermented, and it's growing, and you need to do something about it. Look at the second point. Discipline not only crafts a healthy church, but discipline offers renewal for the person. It's not just about the body. It's also about this man and his relationship. And Paul says, hand this man over to Satan. Boy, that's tough language. We we don't like that does not mean, by the way, that the man died, because some people look at the verse and says, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and they say, hand him over to Satan so Satan can kill him. That can't be, because later in verse 11, he's, he says, don't even eat with this man. Well, if he's dead, you don't eat with dead people usually. Well, I mean, maybe at a wake afterwards, but it's, that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't die physically. What he's saying, I believe, is to hand him over to Satan to disassociate with him, to to put him out of the church on a temporary basis. David Garland, a a biblical scholar, puts it this way, put him back into Satan's realm. Put him back so that he has to deal with Satan. If he's a believer, put him out of the church so he has to live without the church as a support for him to let him see what it's like again. I I think it's kind of like, you remember the scared straight thing that they did for a while in, in America? If you had... If you had done something wrong, not a huge thing, and, you, and, and the judge wanted to, to make sure that you didn't end up in, a, this, in the federal pen somewhere, they would send you to a federal penitentiary so you could see what the death row uh, inmates looked like. You could talk to somebody, and it was supposed to scare you so you never wanted to go there. My dad didn't know anything about that. He was a pastor. When I was 12 years old, I was singing in this gospel quartet, and my dad was invited to go to Leavenworth Penitentiary just outside of Kansas City in Leavenworth, Kansas. He went there to preach. There were 200 inmates that were supposed to be at this this meeting, and somebody at the last minute canceled, and my dad got the great idea to bring the four of us, four teenagers, and I was not quite a teen, 12 years old, and we were going to sing before he got up to speak. Leavenworth at that time was maximum security, 1,500 inmates, uh, all the death row people from the Midwest were there. And it just so happened the way that we walked, we had to walk through the place where they had the death row guys through the prison to get to where we were supposed to speak. Now, I'm not a little guy but I was trying to shrink down as small as I could because I didn't want to touch either side because people had their hands out. They were yelling things. They were spitting. It was nasty. It was horrible. And I thought, Dad, what in the world are you doing bringing me to this place? But I got news for you. I never, ever, ever wanted to go to jail. I... Twelve years old, when I got out, I said, first of all, Dad, I'm not ever going back there again. He says, well, I don't know that they'll ask us to come back and sing. And I said, I don't care about singing. I'm just not going back there ever, ever again. And the Lord says, some of the toughest disciplines should focus on making us have a hunger not to be there. I believe that's what he's saying about this. Galatians 6.1 says, If one sins, you who are spiritual, gently restore. All of discipline should be toward restoration. All of discipline should be to try to get that person who's bound by this sin back to where they need to be. Because discipline snowballs. And, and we don't believe that, but it really is true. Discipline snowballs. Uh, you, you start with one small thing, and either way, if you lose discipline, it can go one way. If you gain discipline, it can go the other. There's a very famous study, Dr. Roy Baumeister. He's a professor at the Florida State University. He had some students come to him, and the students were always slumping around. They were walking to class this way. And and he just began to notice that there was a whole group of men and women in the Florida State University... So he picked about 200 of them, and he had them come in for this study, and he paid them a little something. And what he did is for each one of them, he just took a book, and he put it on top of their head and said, walk across this this place here. And, of course, the book fell off. And he taught them proper posture by putting a book on their head, you know, the the old thing, so they could walk across the room and back. And he would do this over a period of six different days. They would come in six different times. And to get paid, they had to learn to walk from one edge of the room To the other and back. Here's what he noticed. In each one of them, he also did follow up studies. They all learned to eat healthier foods. They all slept better. They all studied harder. All of their grades went up. They all began to lose weight because discipline snowballs. And he taught them one thing to make them feel better about themselves, and it began to snowball into other areas. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing here. He's trying to restore this man. By the way, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that's exactly what happened. Finally, Paul writes back and says, listen, this guy's repentant, accepting back into the church. Discipline is effective. And we know this from other examples. In Luke chapter 22, Peter comes to the Lord, and Peter says, you know, Lord, if everybody else denies you, if everybody falls away, I'm never going to do it. And the Lord says to him, Simon, 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 it's kind of like when your mother calls you with all of your names. You know, if you get your middle name in there, you're in trouble. When the Lord repeats your name, it's not a good thing. Simon, Simon, oh, Simon, Peter. Doesn't even call him Peter. It's Simon. Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. That sounds like discipline to me. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brother. Satan's going to 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 put you in this time and you're going to fail and you're going to be devastated by it but I've prayed for you because this is all about restoration God's instructions are not intended to make us miserable they're, in, they're intended to free us to be the people that he's called us to be and here's the last one discipline is a key to representing Christ it's not just about the church it's not just about the individual it's also about Jesus Christ Because discipline is also key to us representing Jesus Christ. And I I pointed out that that Paul uses the illustration of the Passover. There were ten plagues in the Old Testament. Ten plagues when Israel had been in bondage for 400, 450 years to, to Egypt. God uses 10 plagues. He starts with the water turning to blood, and he goes through this whole list of things. And the 10th plague was the Lord told Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell Israel that on that particular night they were to sacrifice a lamb, to, to slit its throat, to, to drain the blood out, to use that blood on the, the posts on the side and, the, and the, the, the lentil, the one above, and to put that blood on the doorway. And anyone who did not have the blood on the sides and on the top, anyone who did not have that blood, their eldest son son would die I mean that's pretty strict that's pretty strong but for their son to live a lamb must die and Paul says don't you understand the only way that you were able to come into a relationship with God is for a son to die the lamb of God the Passover lamb was Jesus Christ so Jesus died And his blood was on the places where they put the nails to his hands and the blood from the crown of thorns that dripped down his back on the cross. The same thing that happened in the Passover for you and for me. I mean, that's a gory illustration, but it's very, very powerful. Now, if he died in our place, how do we feel about him? How would you feel... If someone died, was willing to die for you, how would you feel if someone was w- would give you everything, would give you life, would give you the opportunity to spend eternity with him? How would you feel if someone turned their back, ignored them, or even worse? When I was in Amarillo as a pastor, I got a call one day. A police detective in the Amarillo Police Department called and he said, "I need you to come. We need you to identify a body. We need you to come to this house. This man was a deacon in your church." By the time I got in there, somebody else had come and identified the body. But he said, "I want you to walk through this because we found out the we found the will that was spread out, and, and it names the church as the benefactor. The, you guys are going to inherit everything from this man." When I walked through the home, I could not believe it. It was there was blood everywhere. He'd been beaten to death by a crowbar. With a crowbar. I mean, it was a horrible situation. I said to the police, "Who in the world would do this? This is this is ghastly." One of the few crime scenes I've been to and, and, you know, you have to put the footies on and you have to, you know, you have to stay away and you can only go certain places. But, but what I saw just turned my stomach. It made me sick. Turned out that the man and his wife, the wife had died a, a year before of cancer. The man and his wife had adopted a little girl the day that she was born and they'd raised her. They'd given her everything. They'd given her cars, and they'd given her uh, college education. They'd given her clothes and food. They'd given her every opportunity that you could possibly have. When she graduated from college, she got to going out with this boyfriend that got her involved in drugs. And she killed her adopted father so that she could have money for drugs. She actually, she and her boyfriend came in one night and killed her adopted father. And you say, that's, pastor, that's horrible. Why would you tell that story? Because we do just about the same thing to Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave us everything, and we turn our back on him, and we shake our fist in his face, and we say, You're not the boss of me. And the Lord says, This is outrageous. This is outrageous. And he says, Your boasting is not good. This one who died and gave you everything. How could you live like this? What were you thinking? You see, folks, others are watching. Others are watching us to see how we act and how we live if we're different if we represent Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says it this way. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's Paul's way of saying, don't you understand, you represent Jesus Christ. It's not just your life anymore. He died to give you everything. How could you live like this? What's the purpose of spiritual discipline? It is to make the church healthy. It is to restore the individual, but it is also to bring Christ back to where he should be. That one who died for us, who loves us. Well, what's the result of spiritual discipline? Just a few more verses and we'll be done. Verses 9 through 13. What's the result? What is the result of all of this? Do you not know the 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 I'm sorry? I have written, I got in chapter six. I was just so excited. Chapter five, verse nine, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the world, the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. In other words, he's already written them a letter and he said, listen, you guys need to disassociate yourself with this person. You need to back off. You need to to make sure that they're not part of this. But he said, I'm not talking about the world. If you're talking about people who don't know Christ and who live godless lives, you'd have to get out of the world. Verse 11. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, a believer in Jesus Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy... An idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. What are the results? Well, there's so many results. We've already talked about this, how we'll grow as a believer and, and we'll do these things. But, but I, I think just to sum it up in two ways, number one, I should be able to stand strong. I should be stronger in Jesus Christ because of the spiritual discipline. When someone comes and corrects me, when I am trained to, to use that skill that God has given me, when I find those disciplines in my life that make me more like Christ, I should be stronger. I should grow in Christ. You see, God longs for us to be different. Not weird, but different. Not strange, but different. Because the world sees these examples, and and we we should be changed. And so many times I'm afraid that we're not. And we think it's just something that's going to happen. You snap your fingers, it happens overnight. But so much of this comes from the training that we receive as those babies in Christ where we learn to walk and we learn to talk and we learn to eat and we learn to to have all of those things associated with maturing in Christ when we get those that we should be stronger over three years ago I I went on a century ride a a hundred mile ride on my bicycle and I finished the century and I was so glad that I did and and I swore I'd never do another one now I'm trying to figure out how I can do another hundred mile ride Larry Tony went with me at the 70 mile mark. He hit the wall. I mean, it was. Larry, where are you? Is he in Children's Church today? Um, but but Larry, Larry was with me about 70 miles. He hit the wall. And he, and he, he several times rode and, and just could not get past that 70 miles. And so this last week, just a week ago, yesterday, he rode the 100 miles and ended up, by the time he ended up, it was 111 on the road where they were riding. Not only did he do 100 miles, at 14.9 miles per hour average, but it was 111, and you think, how could anybody do that? You know how he did it? He just woke up one morning and decided he was going to do it. Is that what it was? No, it was hundreds of hours of riding the bike and training his body and feeding himself the right way so that he could get there. the lord says you should be stronger in your spirit you should be stronger in your faith you should be stronger in the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control which is discipline we should be stronger in our discipline that's galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23 if we do these things that god has called us to do we should be more christ-like including the joy love joy I ran across this. It's an article from the Journal of Personality. I didn't even know there was a Journal of Personality, but there is. They made headlines. It says, this is the headline, disciplined people are happier. A long-term study of 414 inv- individuals was, overtaken, uh, was, was undertaken for 10 years. And this is the conclusion, discipline is not the best path to instant gratification, but it is the only path to something far better, long-term contentment, also known as joy. Do you get that? Discipline will not necessarily mean that you indulge in every whim that comes your way, but it will bring you to those things that will be so much more meaningful. Why did Israel have to go through the 10 plagues? Why couldn't Jesus, why couldn't the Lord have just said to Israel, listen, I'm going to get you out the first time. They went through 10 plagues. I think it was to train them so that when they left Egypt and when the 2 million people came out of Egypt and got to the Red Sea and the Egyptians all of a sudden looked up and said, we just lost our labor force. We lost all of these slaves and they came roaring back after them. Israel's already experienced 10 times that the Lord has provided for them in a miraculous way. In Exodus chapter 14 verse 13. The Egyptian armies behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, they've got mountains on either side. They have nowhere to turn and what does Moses say? Moses answered the people, "Do not be afraid. Stand firm." Stand, we just had We just had our adventure week, and the kids were taught to stand strong, and they were supposed to do their superhero stand. Stand strong. The Lord says, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. They would never have believed that if there had not been ten plagues where they'd seen how God worked in their lives already. They were trained for the response. Discipline is the ladder that gets you from where you are to where you want to be. Discipline is the ladder that gets you from where you are to where you want to be. Here's the last one. I should be able to show grace through Christ. Not only to stand strong, but at the very end, there's just this hint of grace. And he says, listen, don't judge the people who are coming from outside. Don't. I, I mean, I, this is the thing that drives me crazy every now and then. I, I see Christians and they say, well, those people over there, those those people, they don't get up and go to church. Those people don't care anything about the church. And those people look at the lives they live and Those people, those people. And I'm thinking, of course they don't care about the church. They don't know Jesus Christ. Of course they have different values and principles. They don't know Jesus Christ. Of course their life is, is a train wreck in many ways because they don't know Jesus Christ. We're so busy judging all those people. And the Lord says, instead of that, why don't you show them grace? Corinth was one of the most liberal cities in the world at that point. When Paul is writing to this, he's writing to people living in the middle of Haight-Ashbury, He's writing to people who are living in South Central L.A. He's writing to people who are living in Harlem. He's writing to people who are living in some of the toughest parts of the toughest cities that you've ever seen. And there's all kinds of sin around them. And he doesn't say, hey, listen, you guys, go find a cave somewhere and hide away. Instead, he says, why don't you be the example you need to be to show them what grace could do? 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we have plans for everything else. And we need to make a plan on how we can be disciplined to stand firm, to stand strong. We need to have a plan on how grace could grow in our life. I have a plan for everything. Do you have a plan for I have a plan. W- w- Kathy and I had gone and we had stayed in in San Francisco a year ago. We met some friends down there. We went to Muir Woods. We enjoyed it when our kids and grandkids came back this summer. We knew we were going to stay in San Francisco and one of the first things Kathy said is, "You remember that place where we had breakfast?" Remember that place? And we remember the street. We remember the name. Honey, I think, Honey, Honey, it was a crepe place, and you could have, I mean, they made crepes that were just fantastic, and they made pancakes, and they made, our, our grandson had a waffle with chocolate chips in it and on it. Chocolate will never come out of some of those clothes, but he had a, we made a plan to eat those crepes and to eat those pancakes and to eat those waffles until we couldn't see straight. We made that plan. And we plan for everything except for how to be the person God's made us to be. Jesus' plan for his disciples for, was for them to follow him for three years. When they were eating, when they were walking, when they were coming through a field, when they were talking to people, when they were helping those who were sick, they saw him, they saw the presence of God in their life. And his plan was for them to catch what he was saying. But it wasn't just with his mouth. It was the example that he set. It was the discipline that they saw in his life. Later, Paul would write, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Do you have a plan for when you drive, how you can be an example of Jesus Christ? Do you have a plan for when you wake up in the morning, how you're going to be the the person for Jesus Christ? Do you have a plan for how you're going to live for Jesus Christ? I'll close with this, and maybe this will help just a little bit. Shortly after I was 12 years old and went to Leavenworth Prison with my father and sang and was scared straight, a man in the church, Monroe Chastain, came to me and he said, George, I hear you're singing in the quartet. And I said, yes, Mr. Chastine, I am. And he said, I want you to come down with me to the City Union Mission. And I said, no, I, I've been to the penitentiary. I don't need to go to the City Union Mission. Thank you so much. I mean, Kansas City City Union Mission was down in a really bad part of town and there was a bunch of alcoholics and drunks and bums and I didn't want to go there. I'd been there one time with my dad when he preached. I didn't want to go with Monroe Chastine. He was a plumber. He wasn't a preacher. I didn't want to go. And I said, thank you very much. I don't want to go. He says, I'll be there Saturday at 5 o'clock to pick you up. And I said, what part of no are you not understanding? I'm not going to go with you. And he says, we can grab a bite to eat before we go over to the mission. And I said, Mr. Chastine, I'm not going to go. He said, so I'll just check with your dad and make sure it's okay. And I said, Mr. Chastine, I'm not going to go to the City Union Mission. o'clock he was parked out in front my dad said you better get dressed and go he's not leaving (laughs) i got dressed i went to the city union mission he took me for a hamburger and we went out there on the way over he asked me how i came to be a christian i told him when i was a little boy how i accepted christ i kind of gave my testimony and he was peppering me with all these questions and we got down there he said this is the plan you're going to lead some singing. Here's the, you know, here's the hymnal. Pick a couple of songs out. You can lead all these guys in singing. They have to go through this service. And when they're done with the service, there will be an altar call. And then they get dinner afterwards. They don't get dinner unless they go through the service. And, and so you just lead the singing. So I led a couple of hymns and, and got ready to sit down. Monroe Chastain came up and he said, now George Knight is going to give the message. I said, excuse me? I said it in front of everybody. He said, Georgie hate it when people say that. He said, George, you just tell them what you told me on the way over. And I looked at him and I said, what? <laughs> he just pushed me up to the little podium. I told him what Jesus Christ did in my life. I didn't have the right words. I could only quote John three sixteen and a couple of other verses I memorized a lot. And so I just started Tell them some of the memorized verses I had and told them what was on my heart. I spoke for a long time. I mean, I told them everything I possibly knew, and I looked down, it had been 11 minutes. (laughs) Obviously, things have changed. (laughs) And then he got up and he said, we're going to sing just as I am. There were a lot of men who gathered around that night. Two or three of them came to the front. And one of them I noticed that Mr. Chastain was talking to, and he pointed to me and pointed the guy over. He was, he was really old. He was 49. He came over to talk to me, and I said, yes, sir, can I help you? And he said, I have a son your age. I haven't seen him in three years. I used to work for IBM. I made $100,000 plus a year, which back then was just an unbelievable amount of money. And he said, I started drinking, and then I got into some drugs, and I've done some other things, and I haven't seen my son in three years. He said, I've never come to the Good News Rescue Mission before, but I've never heard the story. What does it mean to be a Christian? Would you tell me one more time? And he sat down on the front chair, and I sat next to him, and I told him one more time. He said, can I do that? And I said, yeah, and he prayed, and he accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior. I've never seen the man since. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he went back to drugs or alcohol, but on that night, I know that he said, that Jesus Christ became his Lord and Savior of his life, and he wanted to change his life, and he wanted to get back to see his son, and he wanted to be changed forever. First time I've ever led somebody to Jesus Christ was that night when Monroe Chastain came and picked me up and forced me to give my testimony in front of that crowd. I got back in the car, and I was overwhelmed, but I was still mad, and I said to Mr. Chastain, why in the world did you do that? He said, well, Georgie, on the way over here, I was praying silently while you were giving your testimony, and the Holy Spirit said he's supposed to speak. Someone needs to hear his message tonight, and when that man came up and told me I have a son his age, I knew that he was the man. I wanted you to talk to him, and that's why I sent him over to you. And I said, but why would you do this? Why would you put yourself through this week after week? And he told me a story. He said, when I was 32 years old, had a plumbing business. My business was going down, and I was doing all the right things, uh, going along very well, and I was doing all the right things. I was going to church at the same church where your dad is now the pastor, and I started drinking, and the business began to go down. I said I was unfaithful to my wife. I was a deacon at the church, and they didn't know. Nobody knew except that some of the guys who worked with me, but a couple of them had come to know Jesus Christ and two of those guys one Friday night as I was leaving to go to the bar as I had been known to do now, that was my new lifestyle. They stopped me and they said, Monroe Chastain, you're not gonna go to the bar tonight. You're gonna go home. You're a Christian. This is not the way you're supposed to live. He said, I swore at them and I told them they were, and I can't even repeat the words. He said, I told them it was none of their business and to leave me alone. And they said, if you do not, Come back to Jesus Christ tomorrow or Sunday when we get there at the church. At the end of the service, we will stand up and we will tell this church who you are, who you're, what you're really doing. We will expose you. You either come back to the Lord and you can confess right now, you repent of your sins, or we will out you in front of this whole church. He said, I didn't think my wife knew, so I didn't want to risk it. He said, the next night they picked me up at 5 o'clock and they took me down to the City Union Mission And they let me see what my life would be if I continued on the path where I was headed. And he said, I don't think I've missed a Saturday night since then, coming down every Saturday night to tell people about Jesus Christ. He got his life right. He had lived many, many years faithful to his wife at that point. He learned how to stand strong, and he learned how to show grace. And that's why discipline is so important. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Maybe some of what I've said today is foreign to you. You don't know what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You can come. You can sit on one of these chairs. I or someone else will do exactly what I did that night with that man who used to work for IBM. We'll tell you what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not about joining a church. It's not about being good enough. It's about coming to Jesus Christ and saying, I need you in my life. Accepting what he did on the cross on your behalf. You can do that. Others of you may just need to come and just spend some time praying. You're welcome to do that. If you have a spiritual need, you can do that when we sing this song. Father, you know the hearts of every person here today. It's been a tough topic. I pray that I approach it with humility and with love and tenderness, but also truth. Father, I just pray that your truth as it permeates us will change us to be the men and women of God you've called us to be, to be those people you've called into your kingdom, into your service. And I just pray this in Jesus' name, amen.